Hey everyone, Gil Gross here post-match. Rafael Nadal versus Diego Schwartzman, 2021 Roland Garros quarterfinals. If you're not here for spoilers, click off the video in three, two, one. Rafael Nadal advances to the French Open semifinal where he has never lost, meaning he's never lost at any point beyond the quarterfinal stage. He's reached that hurdle with a four-set victory over Diego Schwartzman, final score, 6-3, 4-6-6-4-6-love. The head-to-head between Nadal and Schwartzman now 11-1. But uh, it's always a little bit more competitive than that number suggests. Schwartzman returns the serve very well. He's got a great backhand return. And he, he's able to take Nadal's heavy topspin early on the rise on clay, which is always a marvel to me. I, I'm just amazed at the timing that Schwartzman displays when he does that. So I always feel like they have good duels from the baseline. That This matchup tends to get very physical. They play some long rallies because there, there's not always a lot of serve dominance. Not always. Always is the key term because sometimes Nadal does... Uh, you know, really find that serve dominance when he needs to. But as a result, like, it, it is a difficult matchup for Nadal, in my opinion, despite the fact that he doesn't really lose these matches. Such was the case once again in this quarterfinal with uh, Nadal being challenged, dropping a set, thanks to some good adjustments by Schwartzman. Uh, but overall, clutch level raise by Rafa at the end of the third set, untouchable level in the fourth set. And to me, the key was the Nadal forehand, which went from good to bad to great in this match. Uh, the you know good in the first set fell off in the second set, still looking for it throughout the third. Then it clicked end of the third set um, in the 3-4 game. And I would highlight the most important point of the match was at 3-4, 30 love, Nadal serving. And he plays this point where he just absolutely demolishes about four forehands in a row. Schwartzman, defend, 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 winner. And I think it was a inside-in forehand winner. It might have been inside-out. But that was the kind of point where, yes, in tennis, every point counts as one. But some points just hold that extra emotional weight. And that was this point for Nadal. You see that, you know... It's also just the signature Rafa Nadal momentum-changing point, where for Novak, for example, normally it's more like he's defending and he, he looks out of the point and he comes back to win the point after kind of being moved laterally and sliding a bunch of times, right? That's normally the momentum-changing point for Novak, the emotion-changer. But for Nadal, it's oftentimes hitting massive forehands over and over and over again until he breaks his opponent. He did it at that point, and from that point on, it was like, okay, Nadal's forehand has entered the chat here. And Schwartzman, with just a couple of mistakes in his next service game at 4-all, opened the door, amazing cat and mouse point won by Nadal um, on break point. And then a, a love hold at 5-4 to close out the third set where, again, Nadal serve and forehand dominance was uh, really looming large. And then if you look at the fourth set, I have an incredible stat to share with you guys about Nadal's forehand, which is that he hit 25 total, and he got 
I believe seven or eight. Hold on, let me let me check it real quick. Yeah, seven. Seven finishes. So that means between winners and forced errors. He finished seven points with the forehand and made zero unforced errors on just 25 forehands. So that's a 28% finish rate. That means every one in four forehands that Nadal hit ended the point, and he never missed. So it caught fire, and then it was it was kind of over for Schwartzman. It's that's where the match normally hinges. Um, it is just how good is Nadal forehand is Nadal's forehand firing because Schwartzman's defense can make it very very difficult. Um, I'm trying to think where to go next. Let's go to um. Let's go to the adjustment that that Diego made and how he was able to win the the second set before Nadal really flipped the switch with his forehand in the first set. Schwartzman was really uh, belting the ball. I think he was making it a priority, you know, not to get pushed around, to be very aggressive and assertive, and was hitting very flat from the baseline and very hard. And I, I think the first seven games for him were uh, pretty, pretty incredible, pretty great. Maybe the first, uh, you know, just the opening 20 minutes of the match, I thought he was making a lot of balls. And the the funny thing is, it's like you play amazing against Rafa, what do you get? You're on surf. And and that's he didn't get any payoff from that. But he he couldn't maintain the consistency. He made too many unforced errors in the first set. And I think just his offensive game plan was not good enough and it was never going to be sustainable. I, I just think he was not playing within himself. The the adjustment he made in the second set was instead of trying to finish the points from the baseline with his with flat ground strokes, I think that he went for more safety and just took time away, more precision, more safety, and it was all about playing inside the court and then coming to net. Um, came to net eight times in the second set. I believe he won seven of the points. He didn't come to net the entire first set, not even once. That was a, a really good adjustment by Schwartzman. Let's see what he finished for the match. Net points won. Uh, Diego ended up being... Um, 10 for 12. So he never quite replicated the success that he had in the second set, but a lot of it had to do with Nadal's balls landing too short, especially his returns landing too short. Diego taking advantage, though, a lot better because instead of sitting back and trying to hit flat through Nadal, he, he really took it early on the rise, precision, come to net, and that was the winning game plan for Schwartzman's offense as it just began to feel a lot more high margin and started to make uh, less errors, less misfires. Um, but Nadal did have forehands to look at in the second set. And the biggest difference is that he just didn't do with them what he needed to do. Uh, if you look at the game at 4-5 where uh, Schwartzman got the break to close out the set, Nadal was up 30-love in this game. He double-faulted at 30-love. And then at 30-15, he uh, hits a couple of short cross-court forehands, and Diego is hitting you know, heavy, kind of penetrating backhands cross-court. Then ultimately, Nadal tries to go inside out on the forehand and misses it. Just not a confident cut from Nadal. And then at 30-all, I think that Nadal has a couple of forehands to look at early in the rally off of his serve and just doesn't do enough damage with them. I also thought there was one he could have came to net on and didn't. Schwartzman gets back into the point 
and Nadal makes a forehand error off of a deep backhand. Then at 30-40, Nadal gets a forehand to attack and hits a poor drop shot. So you see what I mean? Uh, I, three forehands in a row where Nadal can do damage, fails to do so. That was it. That was it. So Diego wins the second set with a good tactical adjustment and also Nadal's forehand level going down. That continued into the third set, but Nadal's serve saved him. Nadal served well in this match, by the way, and uh, even his second serve was actually really excellent, so he corrected that. It was actually the return, which I think Nadal will look back on this match and wish that he did better, but the serve was good. It saved him in the third set because Schwartzman was still playing at a great level, and Nadal was just... Um, landing too short and not hitting his uh, ground strokes confidently enough. Too much loop, too much shape. And what did I say at the beginning? Schwartzman's so good on the rise. It, I, it's incredible his timing. So he was playing inside the court, winning the battle of court position, stripping Nadal of time. And what Nadal needs to do is get Schwartzman off that baseline, hit it, you know, um, hit down the line, make Schwartzman kind of back off by hitting it a little bit straighter and flatter. That would have been better for Nadal. But he kept hitting it loopy, which he does when he's just not as confident. And Schwartzman was just picking off that ball on the rise. So the only reason why Nadal stayed in the third set, in my opinion, was because of his serve. He started out making like 17 of 17 first serves made. Uh, he finishes the third set at... 88%, 22 for 25 on first serve. And he won 77% because because he was just, he's always going to have an advantage when he lands the first serve. Um, and um, he kind of stayed in it for long enough, even with Schwartzman, I think, outplaying Nadal slightly in the rallies. He stayed in it enough with his serve to to get to the end of the third set when, where, as I said, that forehand clicked. And that was all she wrote. Once the forehand clicked, Nadal comes back, uh, gets back to having that decided advantage. Uh, then I will say it was a loss of focus by Diego in the fourth set. It's understandable, but it's fatal. It's understandable because it takes so much effort to stay with Nadal. And it was definitely a disappointment for Schwartzman that I think that he played his best tennis pretty much in that third set and still lost it. But in the fourth set, he the first game, the Love All game, was an absolute throwaway trash game by Diego. And then you give Nadal a two sets to one lead, spot him a break, he smells blood, he's confident. That's where you just you lose the match right then and there and uh, an uncompetitive six-love first set. So loss of focus by, by Diego does loom large there. I think that, you know, that might be something that that he regrets just giving away that love all game so easily. But ultimately, it's very difficult for Schwartzman. And he said after the match, I hope I'm on an opposite half of Nadal. And I will I will echo that. I really hope Schwartzman is not on Nadal's half at Roland Garros next year because back-to-back -back years, uh, he loses to Nadal. Same with Yannick Sinner. I hope that Sinner and Schwartzman don't play Nadal again. I'd like to see them face off against other players and, and see how far they can go without having to face Rafa. A good performance by Nadal through to the semifinals, and now we will see how Novak uh, does or how Berrettini does in the other quarterfinal. Novak Djokovic versus Matteo Berrettini, 2021 Roland Garros quarterfinals. If you're not here for spoilers, click off the video in three, two, one. 
Novak Djokovic has set up meeting number 58 with Rafael Nadal in the French Open semifinals. Four-set victory over the Italian, Matteo Berrettini. The, the big three sweep of the Italians is complete. Well, big two, really. Federer didn't even try. Uh, so um, let's get into this, this match. I thought it was a, a stressful match for Novak because Berrettini has such incredible weapons that sometimes he has the effect of taking the racket out of your hands. But Djokovic did a very good job taking advantage of his strengths, giving very, very little gifts. The margin of error is small for a player who serves as well as Berrettini. But Novak did a great job um, on his serve in the pressure moments. Very few blips. Now, there was one, and we'll get into it, but that was about it in terms of costly mistakes for Novak. He also came in with, with really good tactics on serve and return, along with the obvious baseline tactic of pinning Berrettini in his backhand corner. He did it effectively. But I want to start with Novak's serving strategy because he was mixing up his speeds and spins a lot, very effectively against Berrettini, and making sure to uh, take advantage of Matteo's movement by taking some speed off the serve and dragging him off the court, knowing that while Berrettini is very skilled with the racket and is is someone who is very proficient in, in making his returns, uh, you can expose his court coverage if you pull him out wide. Another thing that Novak was doing was hitting the kick serve as a first serve because Berrettini was standing in no man's land. He wasn't standing far back enough as to let the ball drop down into his strike zone, and he wasn't standing far up enough as to take it on the rise before it kicks up above the strike zone. And he never adjusted his return position for the entire match, which made it especially easy for Novak to protect his second serve, which is, of course a kick serve, which was bouncing up above Berrettini's shoulders on the backhand. He's not strong up there, and I know Berrettini is a big, strong guy, but he doesn't get a lot of juice on his high backhand, and the result is that Djokovic wins an excellent 65% of his second serve points. So, Credit to Djokovic for hitting that serve, going to that serve, even on the first, but also shame on Berrettini for doing the same thing for the entire match on return. Uh, that's my biggest source of frustration for Berrettini, and I went over this in depth when or after he lost the match in uh, Madrid to Alexander Zverev in the Madrid final. It drives me nuts that Berrettini only returns one way, and he's not aggressive on the second serve return. And if you're not a great athlete and you don't want to play defense, you know he is a great athlete. I take that back. But if if you're not if you're athletic strengths don't reside in speed and quickness, well, and you want to play offense on the tennis court, well, you better do something with your second serve return. And this is yet another match that he does not do anything with his second serve return. Um, so good combination there. On the other side of the coin, you have superlative second serve returning by Novak. Just incredible what he's able to do on Berrettini's second serve, which is really in the top 10 best second serves on the men's side. It is routinely in the triple digits, miles per hour, and it has a ton of nasty kick on it. And there were a couple times where Berrettini landed it short enough in the service box that he got free points, but 
if he didn't do that, Novak was doing an excellent job returning it and making Berrettini start the point with the backhand. And everyone on tour knows that they want to do that. That is the tactic against Berrettini. You want to start the point with a Matteo Berrettini backhand. Of course you do. It's just very few are able to execute it as well as Djokovic is able to execute it, especially on the ad side where it really takes a good sharp cross-court angle when Berrettini hits that wide serve because he's going to look to run around and hit the forehand and Djokovic can just put it on a dime. He can just put it in that spot to make Berrettini hit that that uh, second serve as a backhand. Uh, and if you look at the stats, Djokovic almost hit zero second serves returns to the Berrettini forehand side. And at one point, Tennis Channel threw up a Hawkeye graphic illustrating that. Uh, I just thought the second serve returning is incredible. And he got the payoff on the stat sheet because Berrettini protected his second serve at a 42% clip. So that's a huge difference, right? Novak wins 65% of his second serve points. Mateo wins 42% of his second serve points. With that being said, it is typical of this kind of matchup. Berrettini, big firepower, serve plus one guy, and Djokovic, the nimble baseliner, right? The the quick, uh, almost like, you know, Ferrari baseliner. I hate to break it to Matteo Berrettini, and this is great news for Djokovic, but Djokovic also matched Berrettini or perhaps played Berrettini, uh, better than Berrettini, even in the big man tennis, the the place where Berrettini is strong, the zero through four shot rallies on serve, the first strike tennis. And that comes down to consistency because if you watch the match, you know that Matteo Berrettini was electrifying on his forehand, pumping massive winners uh, following up his his first serves. And just your heart skips a beat when Matteo Berrettini is in the middle of the court winding up for his forehand. It's amazing to watch. But Novak is actually doing the same thing. It's not as loud. It's a lot quieter. Your heart doesn't skip a beat. It might take Novak three shots where it only takes Berrettini one. But the key is that Novak isn't really missing early in the rallies on his serve. And service game after service game after service game, he's always answering the bell. And Berrettini did not have a single break point after Djokovic's opening three service games. Never again did he get a break point. Where Berrettini, he might have an untouchable service game, untouchable service game, untouchable service game, loose service game. It only takes a couple per set. But now you look at what's the difference between Djokovic and Berrettini here. Novak's also winning all the short points on his serve. Uh, the, the plus one points, you know, dictating, putting Berrettini on the run, taking advantage of his movement and his defense. Whereas Berrettini, big time, firepower, forehand, hitting through Djokovic off the first serve. They're both doing it. They're both having success. But who is, who is going... You know, who is executing at a higher rate? And for Berrettini, a couple things happened in this match. The first thing is that you could create a montage of easy, simple shots that Berrettini missed. You could create a little montage of like oy vey moments for Berrettini. 
Now, Berrettini's Italian, not Jewish, so he wouldn't say oy vey. He might say mamma mia. I don't know. But you get the point. Easy shots that he just he just didn't execute. Generally, around the net. And I think Berrettini's hands are pretty good. I think they are. So I don't know what happened here. Bad day in the office. Yep. Uh, no, Novak speed. Sure. The moment. Quarterfinal. Maybe. But I don't know. On You know, because I don't think they... Uh, you know, any of these things, but the point is a lot of shots that he needs to execute that he didn't. How about this? Nine drop shot errors in 27 attempts by Berrettini. So that does not count the points that Djokovic returned the drop shot and won the point. Doesn't count that. I'm just saying 27 times, excuse me, nine times Berrettini didn't even make Novak play the drop shot. He missed nine of them. And remember, when you're attempting a drop shot, you're in a winning position. That's a really bad number. That's way too many. And it's too high a rate. Nine of 27, so almost one in three drop shots you don't even make in the court. Very bad. And let's take a look at the fourth set. The game at 5-6. 15 love. Berrettini makes a serve. First ball. Backhand drop shot. Nowhere near making it over the net. 15 all, first serve, forehand unforced error, first ball. Deuce, first serve, first ball, forehand, miss badly to give Novak a break point. Berrettini actually saved that break point. But then later on, um, Berrettini misses some first serves and Novak breaks to win the uh, the set. Some slice errors in that game too. Novak did a good job getting it to the backhand. So it was a good microcosm of the match that that last game. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make is that oftentimes Berrettini would make those early errors. And Novak never. Didn't happen. So let me give you the numbers here. We'll go to rally analysis. And we'll, you see on Djokovic's serve. You don't see, but I'll tell you. Djokovic made seven unforced errors on rally zero through four shots on his own serve. Seven. Let's see Berrettini. He made 19 unforced errors on the first four shots, only counting on his serve, where it's a little bit more important. And you have those attackable balls. That's the presumption. That off your serve, you have the attackable balls. How much? How often are you misfiring? And what Berrettini has in firepower, Djokovic has in consistency. So even where Berrettini wants to have an advantage, he didn't really in the grand scheme of this match. However, here's what happened in the third set where Novak lost. First of all, I want to give Berrettini some credit and some props. I've been a little bit hard on him. Um, he made a really good adjustment by going inside in on the forehand right away. No, no more wasting time with the inside out forehand. Djokovic's backhand defense is too good. He hits it cross court too well that Berrettini suddenly loses his backhand and has to hit a, uh, or excuse me, loses his forehand and has to hit a backhand on the next ball. That's no good. You never want that, right? So instead, Berrettini, where normally he might go inside out a couple times to try to get the player, you know, off the court and get an easier ball and then go inside in, in the in the third set and in the fourth set, because Berrettini realized this was the move. Um, no more messing with Djokovic's backhand defense. As soon as you get the opportunity to attack, inside in right away on that first ball. And I think Novak's defense is a little bit worse to that side anyway. But even if it's not, it's the uh, it's the easier finishing shot. And 
Djokovic is more likely to defend cross-court so Berrettini gets another forehand instead of having to hit a backhand. So great adjustment by Berrettini there. It was key. And in the third set, Matteo has the crowd behind him, and he's absolutely smoking these forehands, just obliterating them. Um, at uh, I think the average speed was 85 miles per hour, maybe 86 or, or something like that, really high. Um but Novak still has a chance in this set, and he goes up. There's a couple of mistakes by Berrettini. Bad drop shot in that tie break. That's a common theme. But Novak from 4-5 actually misses two first balls. It's the antithesis of the point that I just illustrated, that Djokovic was flawless on the first couple shots and was never missing. He was. He was flawless because two of the seven unforced errors came here. He was flawless except those... You know, those two, that botch in the tiebreak, where I just couldn't believe it. I could not believe that Novak missed those two balls uh, at the end of the tiebreak, um, but but he did. And if I go back to the tiebreak in the third set, um, yeah, Djokovic at 5-4 and 5-all missed first ball, one on the forehand, one on the backhand, and then, jo and then Berrettini, massive serve plus one at 6-5, and that was the third set. So that's why Novak dropped the third set. Um, I think I've covered everything here. I guess I'll, I'll cover the, uh, the, the celebration for Djokovic that was just being, making waves all over social media with Djokovic getting really fired up and really emotional. Here's, here's my theory on why Djokovic vocalized so much after the match. I think Novak was absolutely furious about those two misses in the third set. And I just thought he, he thought he should have been off the court. Berrettini is a scary and frustrating opponent, again, because sometimes you just don't have a chance with his forehand and how dynamic it is. Um, but I think Novak, the entire fourth set, was thinking about, how did I miss those two balls in the third set tiebreak? Especially, maybe he was even thinking, even in the, in the um, what's it called, Musetti tiebreaks two rounds ago, I didn't come up big. So very uncharacteristic of Novak, but a couple of bad tie breaks here. Three tie break, break losses in a row, if not more, just three in my memory. So um, that's maybe something to watch out for. Uh, but programming notes here, very important. Uh, preview will come out tomorrow, but, and I will reiterate this, I plan on going live after the semifinals on Friday. I will go live for the first time assuming that all the technical things are in order. That is my plan. So make sure to check out the channel after the second semifinal concludes on Friday. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here post-match. Stefanos Tsitsipas versus Daniil Medvedev 2021 Roland Garros quarterfinal. I'm sorry for the acoustics. I'm away from my equipment. The walls are rock hard here. I'm sure it doesn't sound amazing, uh, but... Here I am. I'm just going to do it anyway. I did watch the whole match. Um, all right. If you're not here for spoilers, click off the video in three, two, one. Straight set victory for Stefanos Tsitsipas. 6-3-7-6-7-5. A massive win in the young Greek's career with all the pressure on him as the favorite 
to win this match and turn around a 6-1 to one negative head-to-head against one of his chief rivals in Daniil Medvedev, and he does it in pretty convincing fashion. Another stepping stone in his career felt a lot like the quarterfinal victory last year against Andrei Rublev, which was his biggest win in a major to date. Uh, I would say this surpasses that, and now he has a very, very big match upcoming in the semifinal against Alexander Zverev. So I was very impressed given the circumstances with how Tsitsipas handled all of that pressure because it was squarely on him. Medvedev had nothing to lose. And not only did Stefanos close out the match drama-free, even though it kind of snuck up on him, suddenly it was match point after uh, Medvedev had 40 love uh, to force a tiebreak in the third set, but also just starting the match, which is generally a very nervous time in the match, just those opening 10 minutes, and Tsitsipas was playing his best tennis right away. I was very impressed with that. I think Daniil Medvedev should also be proud of his tournament and the things he did here at Roland Garros. After a a horrific clay court season, Medvedev really competed hard, gained a lot of confidence, and played his best level throughout this event, and that includes this match. I thought Medvedev fought extremely hard. He made some great tactical adjustments in the second set and the third set, and as a result, he had a really good chance to win either of those sets. At the end of the day, uh, Pass's base level, he's the better player in these conditions, uh, but Medvedev did all he could and, and really made some strides even midway through this match in trying to solve the Pass puzzle and make up for his disadvantages. So I think Medvedev should be proud and obviously Pass should be thrilled. Let's get to some of the tactics and the keys to the match here. And let me start with Pass. It starts with the return of serve. Um, he has he has had historically horrific numbers against Medvedev and just trying to retur- put his return in play. Now, granted, some of these matches have come uh, at the World Tour Finals um, in that speedy indoor hardcore, Australian Open, another fast hardcore where the ball skids off the court. Yes, those things are true, but but they, it has just been really challenging for Pass because he has not gotten enough of his returns in play and just hasn't put any pressure on Medvedev's service games. Meanwhile, Medvedev is always going to put his returns in play, regardless of the surface. He's great at it. And it just felt like every time these two played, all the pressure was on Stefanos, and he was the one who had the difficult service games. And Tsitsipas made it so that it wasn't one. It wasn't a one-way street anymore, and he was getting returns back in play with his deep return position, blocking the backhand return instead of hitting all the way through, and also just able to square up his uh, forehand returns when he got the opportunity. He got good depth on his returns, and his speed is so good. Uh, his defense is so fantastic on clay, especially in his forehand corner. I think he defends his forehand corner maybe better than anyone in the world on this surface. So he trusts his legs, he gets his returns in play, and he makes it hard on Daniil Medvedev. Um, so now let's get to Pass's defense. And uh, I think overall, Medvedev could not hit through Stefanos, especially from the middle of the court, couldn't get around his speed, just couldn't get the ball through the court. Uh, he needed to kind of reach deep into his bag of tricks in order to ultimately finish off Pass and beat his defense. Medvedev did that later on. It took him a little bit, but he did reach into those bag of tricks. I'll get into that later. But uh, Medvedev, uh, Pass's speed 
caused huge problems for the Russian, especially off of the uh, initial kind of first couple shots on Medvedev's service games. Comes down to those short points that Medvedev has traditionally dominated and he could not in this matchup because of Tsitsipas' speed and defense neutralizing uh, Medvedev's first strike after getting the return in play. So Tsitsipas had basically no advantage in rallies that went over nine plus shots. He won two more, 20 to 18. But it was the rallies um, five through eight, medium length, and zero through four, short, that Tsitsipas had a decided edge in this matchup. And a lot of that has to do with Tsitsipas's dependable, high-margin, repeatable forehand aggression. I am just in love with the Stefano Tsitsipas forehand, and I don't know how you couldn't be just looking at that shot. It's got so many, so much RPM, almost a thousand more, no, more than a thousand RPM higher than Medvedev on average on the forehand. So much RPM, which gives it net clearance, which gives it nice kick off the court. But what's amazing is his grip isn't too extreme. And the kind of semi-Western to Eastern grip forehands generally control the ball a little bit better and can hit to smaller targets. Um, and Tsitsipas can. He can hit to those small targets, but he gets such incredible RPM and great pace as well. It's such a good shot. It's instant offense. It's consistent offense. And that's what Medvedev lacks on this surface that Tsitsipas has. When the returns are coming back, what's important? That first shot. So on a quicker court, well, Medvedev's getting the returns back. Tsitsipas isn't. Medvedev's getting the aces. Tsitsipas isn't. That's what's going to swing the, the zero through four shots, the, the short point battle. But on clay, different ball game. All the returns are coming back. This is nighttime, especially on Chatrier. All the returns are coming back. Now what's important? The first couple shots. And Tsitsipas has an edge there. I want to talk about the X factor. This is something I didn't talk about on the preview. It wasn't on my radar. And it was something that I, I didn't see coming. Tsitsipas' medium pace trading um, was really effective here, especially in the first set. If you watch that first set back, it looks like Tsitsipas is taking a walk in the park. Why? He's hitting every shot unless he's attacking a short ball and trying to finish the point or build in the point. But every time he's trading, every time his intention is neutral, uh, which is to remain unattackable, he was swinging maybe 70%, hitting the big targets, high over the net, lots of spin, but not a lot of pace, safety, 100%. He was hitting balls that he's never going to miss. They were not very fast. And why hit fast against Daniil Medvedev? Why hit the ball hard? Doesn't make any sense when you're trading. He wants the pace. His stroke mechanics are designed so that if you give him pace, he is going to hit a better shot back. He's going to hit stronger back and he's going to miss less because he's not going to be having to press and generate his own pace, which is an area that he struggles in and he makes unforced errors when he tries. So Tsitsipas' trading was totally clean in the first set. Six total unforced errors. Medvedev doubled that, 12. 12 unforced errors. Um, I really loved the medium pace trading. Tsitsipas got away from that. I think he, he lost the script when things got... When, when Medvedev started doing different things that was putting Tsitsipas under more pressure and Stefano started to feel more stress, I almost feel like he forgot 
what was working because he wasn't even slicing his backhand anymore either. And that's an example of medium to slow pace trading. I really thought that was so effective for Tsitsipas, medium to slow pace trading, um, really great. Uh, I think Medvedev, I can't pull it up right now, but I think Medvedev uh, made over 40 unforced errors. I want to say 44, and Tsitsipas made 24. Massive discrepancy. Again, it speaks to two things. Um, it mostly speaks to pace generation and how much margin your attacking balls have. So how consistent are you going to hit them without missing? But then also trading. And, and Tsitsipas just so calm and never missing when he's trading where Medvedev is trying to do a little bit more with it to try to uh, make it good enough to avoid that scary, scary weapon that Tsitsipas has in his forehand. All right, I want to talk about the Medvedev adjustments and then I want to talk about the second set because it was the key swing factor in the match. Medvedev's adjustments, so good. I talked about how Tsitsipas' speed was a big problem. How do you combat the speed? Go to the net. Tsitsipas on his backhand side especially, it's a lot of slice defense. So um, when Medvedev was following his aggression into the net, he started to finish points much, much more effectively. And he also started using the drop shot. Again, Stefanos' speed laterally, so good. Medvedev just couldn't hit it by him. So um, the, the answer is, well, take away depth. You know, add a new dimension to your attack, and Medvedev did that and hit great drop shots. It, it doesn't look pretty, but his hands are so good. The results are so good. Um, another thing that Medvedev did was he started serve and volleying off of Tsitsipas's safe block returns. Really great tactic. Worked pretty well, um, especially when Medvedev served to the backhand. And then a third adjustment was an attempt to stop letting Tsitsipas set up his first forehand so easily and to, to try to strip him of some time, rush that shot a little bit, just take the effectiveness away. Medvedev moved in on his return, moved up his return position, uh, started doing much better on second serve return points, not letting Tsitsipas' kick serve drag him all the way off the court on the ad side, and also just forcing Tsitsipas to make more errors on the first ball by just rushing him a little bit, just taking a little bit of time away. So these were amazing adjustments by Medvedev. Uh, they were pretty familiar ones because uh, Medvedev did all of those things against Nadal in the U.S. Open final after going down two sets to love. Move up the court position and get to the net. Those were the two things that he did. So I was getting real flashbacks to that match, and Medvedev did great. That was another match Medvedev couldn't hit through. Right? Can't hit through the defense of Nadal. So go to the net, go to the net, go to the net. And same thing here against Tsitsipas. Remember, it takes a great defender. Very fast. He didn't have any problems against Bublik or Opelka or a, a tired Christian Gaudin, right? But this is a different animal in Stefanos Tsitsipas. Let me talk about the second set. This was the turning point. Medvedev, again, with those adjustments, when he first implemented those adjustments, not only did they work, but Tsitsipas lost his first serve started missing every first serve, just terrible first serving in that uh, second set after uh, doing great in the first set on, on his first delivery. So, um, and then Medvedev, or excuse me, Tsitsipas also started missing, making some unforced errors on neutral balls by just going for too much because suddenly he was feeling the pressure. So Medvedev got into a position to... Um, 
to win this second set. He had two set points at 4-5 Tsitsipas serving. And the first one was rather inexcusable. Backhand return miss in, in the net, which is, out of all the shots, probably the one that's going to keep Medvedev up at night. Not the underhand serve. I think it's going to be that one. Then on the next ball, Tsitsipas hits the tape. So it was that close to Medvedev winning the second set. And then Daniil just couldn't really make the adjustment steps to get out of the way of the ball. And the forehand jammed him. And it goes wide. And then Tsitsipas, um, I believe, plays some very nice points from there to um, ultimately force five all or force the tiebreak. I think force five all. And then it goes to a second uh, set tiebreak. In the second set tiebreak, keep in mind some of the themes that I've talked about. Well, what a coincidence. Love all. Here are the two mini breaks for Tsitsipas. Love all. Medvedev misses a ball right down the middle, right down the middle of the court. Very little pace. Nets it. There's the first mini break. Generating pace from the middle of the court against Tsitsipas' defense. That's the key. Second mini break. Second serve Medvedev. Tsitsipas rips a forehand down the line. Rips a forehand inside out. Rips a forehand inside in. Medvedev's a great defender. It takes three shots. Three great shots. But what is it? Repeated high margin forehand aggression. I thought it was a great summation of how the match played out right there. Um, so that was the second set tiebreak. I don't want to get into Medvedev's underhand serve on match point. It, come on. It's not – look, questionable decision. I thought that he did it as a tactical decision probably was – he said he was saving it for a big point. He thought that he could surprise Tsitsipas. It didn't work. That didn't decide the match. Let's be real. So um, I don't want to – parse that too much. Uh, I think I've covered everything here, um, but just a, a really big win for Tsitsipas. Medvedev did his best, but the surface makes a difference here, and it's about, uh, a lot of it is about a forehand with high RPM, high racket speed, high level of precision. You combine that with great defense, a great kick serve, and a return that works on clay that doesn't work so well on the quicker surfaces, and you have an animal in Stefano Tsitsipas that even the best version of Daniil Medvedev can't quite compete with. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.